0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 13th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Jay Novella. Yo. Evan Bernstein is out of town, so he has the night off. But in 1773, the Whirlpool Galaxy was discovered by Charles Messier. Have you guys ever ah. seen a picture of the Whirlpool Galaxy?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. Messier, did he came up with the uh the naming conventions for um astronomical objects, right? Isn't there a catalog named after him?
1: Yeah, I guess isn't that where the like the M comes from galaxies? Galaxy names like M31? I think yes. Yes, Messier objects. He came up with the uh looking at deep sky objects. So Bob, you're going to tell us about dark matter and its influence on stars.
2: Yeah, yes I am. Have you guys ever heard of uh, a strange star? And I'm not, I'm not talking about Emo Phillips. I was talking uh, astronomically. Uh, <laughs> really? And strange, yeah, come on. So a strange star talk uh, was in the news this week. Physicists in the U.S., Spain, and the U.K. have recently announced that a neutron star can perhaps turn into a strange star due to dark matter particles. So kind of three interrelated concepts here with the with the Neutron star, strange star, and the dark matter. So each one is kind of leading into the other. So I'm going to tr- hit each one in order. And neutron stars are easy. We've covered them before, right, guys? Yeah. They're basically just they're just burned out cinders of uh, of stars that are much bigger than our sun, but they're not big enough to be uh, in the major leagues required to make a black hole. They're still the result of a of a supernova, and uh, basically once when the fire stops burning in these huge stars, gravity kind of wins and because you know the out, the outward pressure of the radiation is stopped so the uh, the outer parts rebound you know the outer parts of the of the star kind of they collapse and rebound causing the supernova but the core continues collapsing and the protons and electrons actually merge together to make neutrons plus a little bit of extra energy left over so you end up ultimately with this city-sized ball of mostly neutrons like it's a kind of like one big atom except it's held together by gravity instead of nuclear forces so that's a neutron star it's been proposed that neutron stars can be converted into a strange star or quark star if uh, if you have the right placement and quantity of energy. Um, a strange star it's, is not composed of neutrons. The idea is that the subatomic particles in, in the neutrons, you know, the up and down quarks that compose the the neutrons, uh, they become unbound due, due to this input of energy, and some of these up and down quarks naturally change into another kind of flavor of quark, a strange quark. So you now have this kind of soup of up quarks, down quarks, and these strange quarks, and this is what strange matter is. Uh, it's also kind of on a smaller scale, you can call it a strange lit, uh, which you might you have heard that term maybe perhaps more commonly. So it may be that this strange matter is actually a lower state of energy than normal nuclear matter like the protons and neutrons. Now, if this is true, this is kind of a key point. If this is true, then if a, if a small part of a of a neutron star is converted into strange matter, then you're going to have this energy that's going to be released, this leftover energy. And this energy is what converts more neutrons into strange matter. So basically, you've got this the whole star being converted in a surprisingly short amount of time. They were saying in a second or less, you've got this... Uh, entire neutron star converted into strange matter. So that's kind of the idea. Uh, Joseph Silk of the University of Oxford, he worked on this project. He said that the neutron star is metastable, like someone on a mountain ledge. Just a little kick can push that person off the ledge and send them to the bottom of the mountain. So a little energy is enough to transform a neutron star into a strange star. I thought that was a really good analogy. Now, you have to keep in mind that there's no clear evidence for strange matter. It's all theoretical. Yeah, there's there's no smoking gun. Things kind of it kind of seems that that it's possible, but uh, actually this could resolve a, an outstanding problem in astronomy. Uh, you might have, you might be familiar with some of the the high energy gamma ray bursts that have been detected over the years. Oh yeah, and some of them are so su- have such high energy that they really can't understand what could have created these bursts. Um, now I believe um, black holes can do this, but uh, apparently black holes they're surrounded by enough matter that, um, that all that energy. You know, just can't get out. Whereas for a neutron star um, being converted into a into a strange ma- strange matter star, that they, this can account for it. So that would be an interesting way to resolve that outstanding problem. So where does the energy to kickstart this process come from? The researchers at the University of of Salamanca in Tennessee claim that they've got calculations that support the idea that the hypothesized particles of dark matter can actually provide this energy. Have you guys heard of WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles? Is kind of for years now. For years now, they've been kind of like a big candidate for dark matter. So they think that these these weakly interacting massive particles, it's thought that they can actually accumulate and annihilate each other in the centers of stars. And uh, this may actually lead to a new way to find these elusive dark matter particles. But, uh, but of course, there are those dreaded skeptics. Paolo Gondolo of the University of Utah said, even if a strange star is detected, it might be hard to tell if it was formed by dark matter annihilation. Which kind of makes sense, because if they could detect that a neutron star is actually a strange matter star, that would be quite a discovery. But taking the next step and determining that th- that it was created or initiated... By dark Matter Particles. I'm not sure how they would actually do that. Uh, but that actually wouldn't bother me too much because um, I'd be, be so excited that the existence of Strange Matter was confirmed. So either way one or the other would be, would be pretty awesome to me. But I thought that was an interesting uh, news item.
0: Yeah, it sounds really cool. Jesus, Bob, I just feel like you punched me in the face with information. Was it good for you too,
3: Jay? It was more like a, like a folding chair that they use in wrestling. Like professional wrestling.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking
1: there's going to be, or there is actually ongoing a Supreme Court case dealing with the ability of people to sue pharmaceutical companies for manufacturing defects over vaccines. Oh, yeah. uh, you guys heard about this case it 's actually really interesting yeah. that there are some legal and some medical issues here let 's talk about the legal issues first so in the United States, you know we 've talked before about the fact that there is the vaccine court. In 1986, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act created the Special Vaccine Court, and essentially the purpose of this was to streamline claims for compensation for vaccine injuries. And these uh, awards are are paid out of a tax, essentially assessed on all vaccines, and but also to protect the vaccine industry from having to defend themselves from all these lawsuits and And to pay out you know a quirky jury award, so these are the vaccine court right. is not a jury court it's you know it 's headed by by judges what what company
2: would actually do the research and pay all this money if they, if they could just lose it all because of uh, some some jury that 's like oh yeah let 's give this guy a trillion dollars
1: yeah but so even you know? even if they win most of the cases, which is the case, just the just to have to defend themselves constantly from these suits. That's that's true. It it makes it not really a viable business model. And there there was actually the risk that, you know, the vaccine industry would go away, would collapse, you know, based under the, the... the threat of suits. So this is a, very, a pretty elegant solution. People still can get get compensated for suffering a side effect from vaccines. Vaccines do have side effects. And if you happen to be one of the unlucky few who gets a rare side effect, you get compensated for it. There are some side effects that are, that are listed. So if it's on a list of like pre-approved effects, you come down with that disease after a vaccine, you ought to pretty much automatically get compensated. And then there are other ones that are not on the list, but, you know, that um, you can still, if you can make the case that it's related. And the threshold is actually pretty low. It's actually a pretty generous threshold. You just have to, you know, prove that compensation is appropriate, not necessarily make a scientific case that the vaccine definitely caused a specific effect. Steve, did they ever consider just
2: having everyone just sign a waiver saying that uh, chances are nothing's going to happen, overwhelmingly likely, but if something does happen, you waive any right to... Any compensation because it's you know it's such a it's a rare event anyway and and I'm sure every most anyone would sign it anyway because because it is very rare.
1: In essence, that's the social contract. If the FDA approves a drug, and you are given informed consent about what the side effects are, that's that contract, right? So if you're given a right. package insert that says these are the the side effects and you read that and you agree to take the medication, you're basically saying that. Um, you accept that risk, and, yeah. and you you cannot sue if you get a known side effect to a medication that was appropriately prescribed, and FDA approved, and you were given informed consent about the risk of developing that side effect. Then there's no right. why, there's no basis upon which to sue, right? would no why,
2: right. So why did they just do the same thing? Or maybe they, I'm sure they probably contemplated that option, but.
1: That was already in place, just like any other pharmaceutical product. But the thing is, we want to, for, for a couple of reasons. One, that doesn't prevent you from suing. It just prevents you from winning the suit. But it was just the number of wow. suits that was threatening yeah. the industry. But also, the, it was partly to encourage people to get vaccinated because it's a public health issue. So you, you don't want right. people refusing to get vaccinated you know, because of the... Potential that they may have the financial burden of those side effects, uh, and also some of the you know if you some of the rare side effects can actually be quite financially burdensome. You know, obviously, is they're they're tragic and can affect the lives of people. There could be neurological side effects, for example, and and I think it's reasonable as a society to say you know if you take a hit for the team, basically you will you'll get paid, you'll, you'll get at least financially covered for your care. Yeah, I mean rides- it's not
3: you don't get. Pain and suffering, and they don 't get to sue the doctors personally, right no you I mean, just get you get your medical costs covered, yeah, you, know? but that could be sense.
1: very
0: expensive yeah.
3: uh, but so but who covers that, Steve? what
0: if somebody does win a case there 's a
1: tax well that 's the vaccine court pays pays out of a, a fund that is uh, created by a tax on vaccines, so we all pay for it with the vaccines so the, here 's the question now so there's there 's a specific case that 's coming up where the the parents of a girl who got uh, seizures and neurological injury following the uh, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis vaccine are suing. Or they actually, they, their claim was turned down by the vaccine court. The vaccine court concluded that the the girl's neurological effects were not due to the the DTP vaccine. Uh, now they want the right to sue the company in state court. So the they they basically took their their chances with the vaccine court. That's. I think they're not allowed to sue in federal court, but the law is ambiguous about whether or not the uh, pharmaceutical company can be can can be sued in state court over specifically a manufacturing defect. Again, not a known side effect, but they have to allege that the company did something they weren't supposed to do. They, you know, they made a mistake in in producing the vaccine. In this case, the specific accusations very interesting they're saying that the an older version of the dtp vaccine the so-called host, whole cell pertussis vaccine uh, or dtwp for whole cell pertussis that that had greater side effects and had more of this risk of neurological disease than a newer vaccine the dtap or dtap for the acellular pertussis component of the vaccine and that the company which is now owned by pfizer That the company knew this and that they had the newer vaccine available, but they still produced the older vaccine because it was more profitable. And they basically were accepting that there were going to be more of these neurological side effects, even though they're rare. So therefore, that's a a quote-unquote manufacturing defect. The company was producing an inferior vaccine when when a safer one was available. What's going before the Supreme Court is really is not so much the, the science of this issue, but whether or not the family can sue in state court or whether the, the Vaccine Act of 1986 protects the industry from these kind of suits or prohibits them. And the, and the law, I guess, is ambiguous. It doesn't expressly forbid it, but but the intent of the law certainly seems like it was meant to make these lawsuits either very difficult or, or impossible uh, so that people have to essentially um, except what they get from the vaccine court, so that they heard arguments on it from the report that I heard was that the justices did pretty harsh questioning of both sides, and it 's really hard to tell where they 're going to come down i don 't know if by the time this podcast comes out if the, you know the news may make this a little bit obsolete, but we 'll give follow up next week if if um If that happens, as soon as the decision comes out, I'm definitely anxiously waiting for us. Now, this is very important because there are thousands, literally thousands of cases where parents are alleging that vaccines cause autism. Right. These are all being now heard by the vaccine court. And there was a special, you know, autism omnibus set set up by the vaccine court to hear these cases. And the test cases are all being rejected. You know, know, there is no evidence to support a link between vaccines and autism if the Supreme Court says that the parents can sue the pharmaceutical company over this question, then the the concern is that that will open the floodgates for these thousands of lawsuits alleging a connection with autism. And, yeah, yeah, so, of course, the anti-vaccine... you know, movement would love that, and they they would do it for no other reason just to bring the you know the vaccine uh, industry to its knees. Whether or not there's they win any of these cases or there's any anything to their accusations, that's kind of the whole point of the act was to prevent that from happening.
0: Steve, I have a question for you. Yeah. Let's say that all vaccinations stopped. Yeah. What do you think like five years would be like? Parents would once again know that, what
1: it means to live in fear of your kid, con- you know, contacting polio and. Measles and whooping cough and a lot of these diseases that have been either significantly reduced, essentially no longer endemic. You know now some of these are coming back actually because of the reduced vaccination rate, or like whooping cough never really went away, but it was pretty minimal.
0: Do you think we would have like obvious and massive amounts of people? Yes, we would go back
1: to the 1930s or 40s. You know when before the vaccines were there. I mean, you know it'd be better than that in that. Yeah, you know, we have better medical, medical care. The, mor- the mortality of these diseases is lower simply because we have better medical care. You know, we can keep people alive even if when they have severe whooping cough better than we could in the 1930s or 40s. But it, but the bottom line is that the, these cases would skyrocket, and it would be the, horrific. It would be horrific. Yeah, there's just no question about that. Um, it's already bad enough just with the vaccination rates dipping below herd immunity. You know. Very quickly, the, the medical issue here is also very interesting because this is one of those cases where you know there were there were case reports of seizures and sometimes neurological injury following the whole, whole cell pertussis vaccines, and there actually were you know lawsuits and and uh, awards you know associated with that. Um, but it turned out it turns out that with you know better uh, studies it looks as if there really isn't a connection. Now, you know, I, I really tried to wrap my head around the research on this. And, and from what I hear of other people's analysis, that this it's still kind of a bit of a murky question. But uh, the, the most definitive study I can find was a 1994 population-based con- case control study where they essentially said that there was statistically no increased risk of having an acute neurological illness in the seven days following the the whole cell pertussis DTP vaccine. So that seemed to put the lid on it. But then there still have been, later than that, case reports of of children maybe getting neurological events after the vaccine. So I, I think the issue is not 100% to bed, but it seems the evidence is pretty heavily against there being an actual cause and effect. In any case, you know the, it's been replaced by the DTAP vaccine, the acellular pertussis, and the end. The, it's no longer really an active issue. It's it's one of those cases in which the 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 science sort of lagged behind the lawsuits. You know, kind of like you know, I, when I blogged about this, I likened it to the silicone breast implant issue, where there was, uh, you know, a, a slew of lawsuits, including a class action lawsuit that was settled for billions, and uh, you know, Dow Corning basically had to file for bankruptcy. As a result of that, and then that right on the heels of that, the really fairly definitive science came out showing that, well, in fact, the silicon doesn't cause an increased risk of autoimmune disease or, or cancer or other serious illness. Court cases can be settled on probability prior to really the the scientific issue being settled, which is another reason why we want to protect the industry from essentially being crushed under under preliminary evidence, you know, and then even if they're later exonerated by by more careful scientific studies. The issue here is, what well, we need a law that can keep the pharmaceutical industry honest by keeping them accountable if they actually do have a manufacturing defect, right? We don't want to give the pharmaceutical industry carte blanche and say no matter what you do, you can't be sued, right? That's not an ideal situation, but at the same time they do need to be protected from frivolous suits from misguided suits and even malicious suits especially in the given the context of the anti-vaccine movement i mean again there are literally 5000 parents who would love to sue you know pharmaceutical companies over the very misguided belief that vaccines can cause autism and that would be a public health travesty we i think we absolutely need to keep that from from happening but at the same time, we need there to be some accountability on on the pharmaceutical company. So, you know, either the court will make a very nuanced interpretation of this act, or if they don't, if they basically on legal grounds say, well, you know, whatever the the optimal situation is, this this law is what it is. All we could do is interpret it. We can't change it. And then it may then become a legislative battle where, it, you know, essentially it's be up to the legislative branch essentially to write a new law that is more nuanced and does achieve those goals better than the existing act. So this is all going to be played out, and we have to just see what happens. It's very interesting.
0: Nuanced laws, huh? (laughs) Well,
1: you know, what can I say?
0: Steve, do you think that these issues are ever really going to fully be put to bed? Like, is there going to be an end to the anti-vax movement? No, there's been one ever since there have been vaccines, and I think there always will
1: be. These things go in cycles and they just, you know, you know, it just, there are some things that just never go away. You know, there's, there's something emotional about telling parents that they have to inject something um, scary into their little babies. You know what I mean? And I think there's always going to be a certain number of people who just can't wrap their heads around that or are going to have an emotional reaction to that. And science is also noisy and ambiguous. And it's it's never going to be so crystal clear that you can't find something to get scared about. Uh, and there's you know there are ideolog- ideologues and anti-scientific zealots, and there's always going to be people looking to make money by exploiting fears. Right. It's just there's a, there's too many forces at work. It's Plus the pattern recognition.
2: Away. There's always going to be health issues with kids around the time they they get these shots. That's always going to be there, and they're just gonna
1: they're just gonna see a cause and effect, and that's just the way people are. One more quick news item. You guys remember? I think a couple weeks ago we discussed. Uh, the the possible discovery of a planet in the Goldilocks or habitable zone around a nearby star.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, actually, at, at the time, I pronounced the name of the star Gliese, and I said then the planet or Gliese five eighty one, and the, and this new planet would therefore be Gliese five eighty one G. But I was informed by a listener that it's actually a German word, and it's supposed to be pronounced Gliese, as two syllables, not one.
3: And, of course, it might not exist. And,
1: yeah, that's the new news. The follow-up is that Gliese 581g may not exist. That's right. Oh,
2: boy. Why did
1: astronomers think it existed in the first place? Well, you know, there are various methods that are used to to identify exoplanets or planets around other stars, Uh, one being the eclipse method, you know, where planets move in front of the star and we see the little dip in light. Or the, the transit, transit the, the tra- tra- transit yeah the transit method but there's also the the so-called wobble method where we just look at the the wobbling or alterations in the movement of the star due to just the gravitational perturbations of the planets going around them and you know we we're getting very good at making very precise measurements and using computer algorithms to pick a, pick apart the different movements of the star. It's amazing when you think about it. So around Gliese 581, there's at least 5 known planets. And imagine all those planets all affecting the movements of this of that star at the same time and having to pick them out. Uh you know, separate out all of those movements, but that's basically what astronomers are doing. Using this method that, again, that was the method, the wobble method that was used, and uh, based upon the analysis of two different data sets of observations, uh, that the team published recently, that the this discovery of of a fifth planet, the the five eighty one g, that uh, they believed was about three to four Earth masses and in the habitable zone, although still very close to the star. Um, however. This claim has been contradicted now by an independent analysis. A Swiss group did an independent analysis of a of a different set of observations, 180 measurements made over 6.5 years, and looking at their data of the same star, they reported that they did not find any evidence for this fifth planet. So essentially now we have two different data sets,
0: with contradictory conclusions, I hate when that happens. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it, it's impossible to happen because there. This is an observation that was made.
1: No, it's not impossible, obviously, because it did happen. It's but a, it's, yeah, so, it's so subtle, Jay. There's it's a lot very of subtle,
2: in yeah. the data required. Uh, it's not. It's not like a picture of the planet. There it is.
1: They they are picking a tiny signal out of very precise measurements. So essentially right at the edge of our ability to detect. And you know, so it's possible that it was just either a fluke of the data or just noise that just happened to look enough like a signal that it, it confused the scientists. Or it's possible that the Swiss team is wrong, that the planet is there, but that they weren't able to pick that signal out of the noise. It was just too obscured. And they're very careful to say that their data does not prove that a planet is not there. You know, again, more careful, ob- you can, all you could do is set limits on on what is known, but there can always be a, a more subtle signal that it just was not the the observations were not subtle enough to pick out.
0: Well, it is very cool that you know a, a group of uh, astronomers make the claim they found something, and then uh, on another part of the planet, another group is out there looking too and and trying to confirm or or deny what they are saying. Now, that's science. Yeah, replication is key.
1: Yeah. And there's probably a human story in here as well. I mean, you never know just, you know, from the outside in terms of competing groups of astronomers, etc. But, you know, all of that aside, essentially this will have to be resolved by more careful measurements. Uh, and they're saying it'll take a couple of years, you know, to, to really settle this issue by gathering more data. And, and eventually, the, the other cool part of science is that eventually the evidence, the data will win out, right? This will be resolved by getting better data.
3: Or until whatever's living there visits us and, yeah. you know, yeah. and takes yeah. over Earth.
1: <laughs> well, Jay, you're going to cover Who's That Noisy this week.
0: I am. So if you guys don't remember, here is the Who's That Noisy from last week.
4: <laughs>
0: so what do you guys think that was? So, it wasn't the
3: teachers from Charlie Brown? Huh?
0: No. That
3: was the only guess I had.
0: It was actually uh, thought to be, because it's a little unclear, but it's thought to be the first ever recording of human voice.
1: Really? Right. On like a yeah. wax cylinder or something.
0: Yeah. Dare you guess who guessed it first? Trinuk. Oh. Exactly. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> that
3: guy How is do a I machine. Know? That's incredible. I'm shocked. All right,
0: being that Evan is away on business. And uh, I asked Steve to let me cover Who's That Noisy. I had a little fun with it. So I have a couple things I'm going to play for you guys. A couple? Um, couple. Yeah, one of them just happens to be now. It is the month of October. That is my only uh, hint on this one, the month of October. It's a ghost. No. It's a pumpkin. Please identify what this is. A naked American man stole my balloon.
2: A naked American man stole my balloon. Oh, yeah, baby. Good one, Jay.
0: Send that in if you can guess what that is, or
3: I thought you said you had a few.
0: I do. Okay, here's the real one. Well, not the real one, but here's the one that is uh, going to be puzzling. And take a listen.
1: Cool. Very interesting. Uh, Sounds uh, nice and sciency. By the way,
0: a naked American man stole my balloon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, man. (laughs) Well, thanks for covering, Jay. Good job. Well done. We have time for one email. This one comes from Andy Paolo from Glastonbury, Connecticut, just around the corner. And Andy writes... I thought you might be able to shed some light on the seemingly magical properties of McDonald's food in the movie Supersize Me and this article from the Daily Mail. It seems that McDonald's burgers and fries will not decay if left out, and for some reason that's a bad thing. I don't know if the fact that food should decay is a false premise, but I thought this might make an interesting quick topic if you haven't already discussed it. Thanks for the great podcast year after year. Well, thank you, Andy. Uh, Rebecca, you
3: were going to enlighten us about these magical burgers. Oh, I would I would love to. Um, thank you for sending this in, Andy, because this has been going on for way too long, and I'm actually surprised that we haven't got around to covering it until now, because I think I first saw this, like, I don't know, earlier this year, maybe? Um, it was ages ago, um, because it's been done before, and I don't know if this is the same person that I saw before, but this woman put out a McDonald's hamburger and some french fries and uh, it's not getting moldy and um, it's been out for six months and she's freaking out. By which I mean she's called the Daily Mail and had them come and take a picture and talk about it and it's ridiculous. It, it's even been on, it's, like it was on Boing Boing which was really disappointing because they tend to be smart usually about this sort of stuff but is it is it an urban legend? No, it's it's so it's true. It's true. You can you can try this at home. You can take a hamburger and some French fries. You can leave them out, and they cannot get moldy. However, in order to do that, you, you'll have to you know have it under some very specific circumstances. A vacuum? Um,
2: put them in a vacuum?
3: Not even. You would need to put <laughs> it in maybe an air conditioned room, free from moisture, and that's it. I don't know if you guys did this when you were kids, but we used to take... I um, I ate McDonald's. We used to take apples and put little faces on them and then put them, you know, on the windowsill or something, and they would shrivel up and turn into, like, old faces. I guess it was to teach us children, you know, the fact that one day we'll all get old and die. But the point is, the apples didn't get moldy, and they didn't attract tons of bugs. Why? Because they were held in an air-conditioned room that was fairly clean and free of moisture. Um, they, so they would just dehydrate and shrink. And so you look at the pictures that they've got. Um, that, you know, She took a picture on day one and day 171. So first of all, she says... Um, the first thing that struck me on day two of the experiment was that it no longer emitted any smell. And then the second point of note was that on the second day, my dog stopped circling the shelf it was sitting on, trying to see what was up there. Okay, well, maybe because they couldn't smell it anymore. That's, that's just something I thought of. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing shocking about this thus far. She says, uh... The fries shriveled slightly, as did the burger patty, but the overall appearance of the food did not change as the weeks turned to months. Okay, well, that's what's called dehydration. The reason why they shrink is because they are losing moisture. Um, That's the opposite of what happens when things start getting moldy, when they get, you know, moist and the mold comes you can go one way or the other with just about any food. There's nothing scary about McDonald's, and I say this as a vegetarian. Um, I I haven't stepped foot inside of a McDonald's in years. You can get salads there now. Yeah, I'd rather and... just not. Um, yeah. <laughs> I find nothing at it. all appetizing about McDonald's. I don't oh, do fast food.
2: McDonald McDonald's hamburger, the little that
3: little tiny hamburger. I don't oh, I don't begrudge M-G. you, your McDonald's. And the thing Good. is Good. I I there's nothing there's nothing about McDonald's that is less natural, less or or more artificial than a meal you would get at TGI Fridays or any other restaurant. There's nothing okay. plastic in them. There's no wax that's the thing. What's the implied claim there? Yeah, well, you know what she, she says, um, at six months old, the food is plastic to the touch and has an acrylic sheen to it, implying that it's this unnatural synthetic thing that's terrible for you. But no, actually, you know, you can look up the ingredients for McDonald's food. Um, they put it out there. It's it's yes. meat. You know, it actually is meat and bread. Um you know, and and that's potatoes. That's just what happens
1: when it dries
3: out. That's all right. Exactly. Well, but the that... thing is, guys, everybody would expect
0: any food left out long enough to rot. And for you there would to be mold if you had never,
3: um, if you weren't like a total slob, like. I have been in the past or you know I've lived with roommates who were who you know might like drop a piece of bread somewhere you know behind the kitchen counter that you find 6 months later and it's like a crouton you know it doesn't necessarily get moldy so why does uh, why does bread get moldy in the bag because of moisture and and you know mold spores yeah. It's not the bread drawer and the bag keep the moisture in. Right, it's not it's not magic. If you if you but if you take that same bread and you put it in a vacuum, what happens? It doesn't get moldy. If you leave it in a dry, cool place like an air-conditioned building, then yeah, it'll just like the moisture will just go away. It doesn't get moldy.
0: Could you theoretically eat it? Like you know, a month later, theoretically, it be theoretically,
3: scale. it probably wouldn't taste very good. So yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend eating it now.
2: What she should have done was to take a normal, average, you know, natural hamburger, put it side by side, and see what the difference was. And it, I, I assume, it would be pretty much the same effect, and yeah. it might have altered her conclusions a bit. But uh, that's just science.
3: That. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, take, take your Happy Meal and leave it outside and see what happens. Right. Um, Put it in
2: multiple it, different environments to see what yeah. happens. So.
3: Yeah. But is it overall,
0: is this implying that fast food is lower quality or has plastic in it or whatever? You so know? It's, it's, loaded it's loaded
3: with so preservatives. Right, not natural. natural. Yeah, and what the, what the Daily Mail did was go to McDonald's and ask them why their food isn't biodegradable. Which is just uh-huh. completely ridiculous. Wow! Um, the, so those ridiculous. apples that I left on my, you know, on the the school chalkboard thing. I mean, that's are they not biodegradable? No, they were just apples. You know, just because something, <laughs> just because something is dehydrated. How about some beef jerky? Is that you know is, is that yeah, biodegradable? Right. Have you ever yeah, seen beef jerky? I mean, that basically is left out meat. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. It's <laughs> you know? dehydrated meat, and I love jerky.
3: So, yeah, I mean, if anybody out there wants to replicate this experiment, please do. Um, But, yeah, just maybe throw in a few more variables so we can see what's going on.
1: Yeah, control for some variables. Well, we have a great interview coming up with Ben Goldacre, so let's go to that now. We are joined now by Ben Goldacre. Ben, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Hey, hi. It's been a while.
4: It has been 8 million years since we last spoke. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh, And Ben, we're having you on because your book, Bad Science, is now being released in the United States.
4: Yes, where nobody has ever heard of me. That's right. (laughs) Has it been successful in the UK? Uh yeah yeah I mean it really freaked me out it sold a quarter of a million copies and it was um it was the Christmas number one it was a beautiful moment usually that's Cliff Richard
0: that's awesome that is awesome what does that feel like I mean you must have been freaking out
4: uh yeah to be honest I I mean I, like it sounds slightly sanctimonious and naff but um I'm like a real evidence based medicine nerd so to me. The fact that firstly I managed to get away with basically writing an epidemiology textbook with some uh, sort of bad jokes in it uh, under the cover of quack busting and that a lot of people bought that, that was a source of um, enormous pleasure to me, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Really pulled one over on them, huh? Exactly. Uh, One thing you do in your book that uh, perhaps we don't do enough of in our quack busting is going after so-called big pharma because... They produce a lot of bad science as well, or at least they do their best to promote whatever science will make them money, good, bad, or indifferent, right?
4: Yeah, and actually what I find really interesting is that, um, to me, there's very little difference between quacks and big pharma. I think they both use exactly the same tricks to distort the evidence in order to confuse their target audience. It's just that, um, that for big pharma, for the most part, their target audience is doctors. So the tricks they use are a little bit more sophisticated, but also actually, I mean, a lot of the tricks that they use are Well, a lot of the tricks that quacks use are the tricks that big pharma used to use kind of 20, 30 or 40 years ago when it was less, um, when it was less clear to doctors universally what dodgy trial design looked like. So, you know, it, it would be fairly unusual to have a modern pharmaceutical industry trial with sort of, you know, crappy blinding or inadequate strategies for randomization like you would see in a homeopathy trial. But you certainly still see things like cherry picking. And you see cherry picking to some really sort of frightening and ludicrous extents with, with the pharmaceutical industry.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. They've basically gotten very sophisticated at fudging the, the, the research in order to, you know, again, promote their products. So like, for example, you talk about cherry picking. I think what they do mostly is try to cherry pick trials, right? This is a big controversy, actually, uh, at least in the United States. I'm not sure if the same discussion is going on in the UK. The whole notion that, you know, a pharmaceutical company can't choose which trials to publish or to make public, right? They have to Make all of their data available, but but some of them are saying no, no. It's, we own the data, so we only will publish what we want to publish.
4: Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, as as far as I'm personally concerned, if you selectively choose not to publish the trials that you do that don't have a, a positive result, to me that is basically the same as research fraud. And I'll explain why. Like if I if I did one trial on a, on uh, a thousand patients and 300 of those patients did really well, and 700 of those patients did really badly, and I just deleted the patients who didn't do very well and only reported on the 300 who did really well, then obviously like, I'd be laughed out of town. People would just say, well, that's really obvious research fraud because you are selectively deleting the data points in this one single study that you don't like. But what's bizarre is if you do that by wiping a whole trial from history – then for some reason that's not regarded as as research fraud for some reason that's regarded as some kind of you know sort of marginally questionable behavior but it's uh, to, to me it's 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 unambiguous you know you are you're you're poisoning the well and the the really sad thing i think about that is there's there's lots of really good quality evidence now which i've which i've written about in the column a lot showing that um that the claims made in adverts, like direct-to-doctor adverts in um, in medical academic journals, that the claims made in those adverts aren't supported by proper evidence. And there's lots of evidence as well that the kind of stuff that you get from drug reps um, or from paid key opinion leaders uh, working on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry, that, that that evidence can be dodgy too. But the thing is, I kind of feel like I can ignore that stuff. But when you poison the well, when you, when you distort the clinical evidence that is available out there for doctors, that doctors use to make decisions about what is the best treatment for the patient in front of them, there's absolutely nothing I can do about that. Just today, in fact, there was a, there was a, a an absolutely outrageous example published in the British Medical Journal, and it's all free to access if anybody wants to read it on, on BMJ.com. Um, a drug called reboxetine which is a fairly unusual kind of antidepressant. It's a noradrenergic drug. And this appeared to be, you know, a reasonably effective um, and reasonably kind of side effect-free antidepressant drug. And it's been on the market for many years in the UK. It just turned out today a bunch of people from Germany, went out and collected all of the data that they could opportunistically from every single source they could possibly find and badgered the company and badgered various different places to get unpublished data. And they found that 74% of the clinical trial data on this drug had been left unpublished. 74% of the clinical trial data on this drug right. was, was unpublished. And when they factored that in, the picture on Raboxetine completely changed. It actually turned out that it's no good. It's no, it's no better than placebo. It's basically worse than alternative antidepressants. And God knows antidepressants are basically pretty rubbish drugs anyway for mild and moderate depression. Anyway, it basically is, is either useless or worse than useless. And Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like as a doctor who, you know, I think I've, I think I've prescribed reboxetine myself to people in the past. And you kind of think, well, how am I supposed to know whether something works or not if it's not by reading clinical trials and and it's it just seems obscene to me that there's no law saying that you have to publish everything that you produce on a drug it, it's 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 insane to me how did they persuade them how-
2: how did they persuade them to release that unpublished data? To me, I would think that would just be burned in some huge bonfire and never to be talked about again. How, how do they convince them to do something like that? Uh,
4: it's always a huge game of cat and mouse. Um, if you read on bmj.com, you can read all of the effort that they went through there. What you often find is that something will be lodged somewhere with a regulator. Sometimes you'll find that there are inconsistencies in the data that's lodged with one regulator and the data that's lodged with another. Sometimes all you can really do is say that there's data missing. So, for example, right now, um, I guess um, uh, like most people are probably, well, most people in like the nerdosphere have heard of the Cochrane collaboration. Mm-hmm. So, the Cochrane collaboration is a non-profit international collaboration of academics who produce systematic reviews of the literature. So, you go out and you find all of the studies that have ever been done addressing a particular question, and then you bundle all the results from all of those studies into one big spreadsheet and you do a meta-analysis, and you get the best quality answer. And these are internationally respected. And right now, the Cochrane Infectious Diseases Group are trying to do a Cochrane review on Tamiflu. And Tamiflu is obviously it's a huge drug, and it's a drug that people spent vast amounts of money on during the swine flu story because they were freaking out and wanting to stockpile it. And they have been in touch with the company trying to get hold of eight trials just kind of you know the, the you know the basic data on eight trials which the company claimed to have done and, and published sort of collectively in a in a meta-analysis but none of the individual trials have ever been published anywhere and right now they're refusing to hand over to the Cochrane Infectious Diseases Group the results of these trials and i've been copied in on some of the correspondence between the people in the Cochrane group and the drug company and the drug company they're basically saying things like well, you know, we don't trust that you're going to give our data a fair hearing, so we're not really very happy to give it to you in the form that you're on. And you just go, look, what do you mean? You should, you know, this this should be publicly available and it should be mandated that it's publicly available. And it's it's a really, really strange, strange scandal. Just this morning, um, and the reason why I'm feeling slightly incoherent right now, is I, um, I got up very early and went to um, uh, a breakfast briefing at the Royal Society of Medicine with the FDA commissioner, who's in the UK at the moment. I asked her a question about this, and also you know, I chatted to a lot of people from the industry who were there. And over and over and over again, what you hear from these characters is they talk about investors they talk about how you know this this data is commercially sensitive the the sense that you get is firstly that they really don't understand the need to be kind of proportionate like of course it's not in their commercial interests for people to find out that their drugs not as great as they're claiming it is but actually you know patients being treated in accordance with the best currently available evidence is is definitely more important than that and actually i think I think the only reason that this has been allowed to persist for so long is because the issue is kind of a tiny bit nerdy it's a tiny bit technical and it's a tiny bit impenetrable and so the public haven't really fully understood the the weirdness and the outrage of what's been happening and I think that kind of touches on a lot of the stuff that that people in the in the kind of skeptic movement although I still want to stick my fingers down my throat every time I even sort of speak that phrase. But, it, you know, you know what I mean? Like the kind of nerds who are interested in the yeah. kind of stuff that we're interested in. Um, I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, but those guys? <laughs> <laughs> those guys. Um, you know, the, the I think this kind of touches on a lot of the issues that the sceptics movement uh, address in the sense that um, it, it feels a little bit to me like a lot of the anti-vaccine campaigns that you come across and a lot of the sort of Tedious claims that, you know, vitamin pills will cure cancer and magic sugar pills made by homeopaths will treat your MS and all of that stuff. It it feels a little bit to me as if that's sort of driven by almost a poetic response to, to the problems with Big Pharma. It's like people want to buy into these conspiracy theories and they want to buy into the idea that there's this brilliant sort of empowering alternative treatment. Because they kind of know that there's something a bit rubbish and a bit weird about the things that Big Pharma are doing. But the problem is their solutions just kind of don't add up. You know, Big Pharma is dodgy and hides unflattering clinical trial data. That's true, but it doesn't naturally follow from that. that MMR vaccine causes autism. You know, Big Pharma is dodgy. Therefore, sugar pills cure cancer definitely doesn't add up, nor is it a particularly satisfactory uh, sort of political response to a really serious regulatory problem. But I, it kind of feels to me like that's that's slightly where that stuff is coming from.
1: Yeah, I agree. I always find it ironic that the promoters of dubious treatments and you know, so-called alternative medicine, et cetera, are always, again, weaving conspiracy theories about big pharma, but they're never actually criticizing what's actually wrong. Their, their criticisms are always off mark because they're these really blown out of proportion conspiracy theories, whereas you say the there are problems with the with the regulation of the pharmaceutical industry but it's more subtle it's more subtle than what they're saying and it's also not unfixable like the pressure in the US is at least in the US all pharmaceutical companies have to register their trials with the FDA that so at least we know the trial happened it's registered it's on record somewhere and you, know, you have to get IRB approval and, you know, there are regulatory steps you have to go to to do research on humans. We just need to, take that, need to take that last step and say, if you do research on humans, the public owns that data. You don't own that data. And that's in the public domain and it has to be completely transparent. Otherwise, we can't have enough faith in the process. And I think that the pharma- – tell me if you agree or not that the pharmaceutical company actually is hurting themselves more by not being fully transparent because they're they're eating away at the their the, their own system the system that they're surviving on.
4: Yeah, I mean I think it's I think it's a strange scene because I think it's one of those situations where actually if they all collectively campaigned for better regulation then there wouldn't be such a massive reputational cost for their industry and there'd be no Kind of selective advantage for any individual one of them in doing the wrong thing. If everybody had to do the right thing, you know, I think right. it's, it's kind of strange that they've, they've got caught up in this race to the bottom, if you like. And I agree, you know, they, they, it, I, I think it probably would be in their interests to all be regulated much more tightly and to be compelled to, to hand over all this data. What's, what's particularly frustrating is what you keep getting is people telling you, look, this problem has been solved. And what's interesting is every time people claim the problem has been solved, when you wait a couple of years, you find out that actually it wasn't solved. So, for example, I was on uh, Radio 4's Today programme about two years ago up against this guy who used to be the UK head of Merck and now works for the Medicines and Healthcare Regulator in the UK, the guy called Vincent Lawton. He has the voice of a baddie, but he's actually a very nice guy, but he totally has the voice of a baddie. He was saying, look, all of this stuff has been fixed. The ICMJ, the International Committee of Medical Journal Editors, have said they're not going to take any more trials uh, unless they were already pre-registered on a clinical trials register, which is obviously, you know, that's one of the most important tools for transparency is you make people register trials, as you say, so that at least we know what you've done and we can go back and check and see if you've actually bothered to publish it. Now, the ICMJE did say in 2005 yeah, we're we're not going to take any more trials unless they've been properly registered before they started. And then they said, okay, and we're definitely not going to do that from 2007. From 2007, we're definitely not going to take any more trials unless they've been pre-registered. And then in 2009, Doug Altman, who's a prof of medical stats in Oxford, and a bunch of colleagues did a, a really elegant study where they just went to all of the top 10 medical journals in the five biggest fields of medicine, you know, gut, Respiratory um, and so on. And they went and looked and they just said, okay, how many of these trials have been properly registered? And the answer was like, still a huge proportion, I can't remember, maybe a third or a half, hadn't been properly registered before they started. And this was even after the deadline that the ICA, ICMJ had set, saying, we're definitely not going to take any more. That's, you know, the most recent uh, claimed fix to this problem, which actually was no kind of fix at all. Now, The FDA say everybody has to register their trial on clinicaltrials.gov, which is the American government trials registry. So that won't have everything, but that'll have a lot of trials on it. And they are also saying now you have to publish your data within a year of completion or within two years of completion if it's on an unlicensed use of the drug. But that only started a couple of years ago, so we've got no idea if that's really happening or not. And the penalty is only $10,000 a day. And $10,000 a day makes $30 million a year. So $30 million a year actually as penalties go is, is, it's nothing for a, for a proper big pharmaceutical company. You know, blockbuster drugs take in several billion dollars a year. $30 million a year is, is chicken feed really. So I, I don't know if that's going to fix the problem.
1: Yeah. The bottom line is that. The people who have millions or billions of dollars at stake are generally going to know the regulations perhaps even better than the regulators who are Absolutely. some government official you know, who maybe was just appointed to the job and doesn't have the, anything personally at stake.
4: Yeah, I think that's true, and I think also it's an interesting case of where um, it's actually quite difficult to frame regulations around common sense. I mean, you know, although we all despise lawyers – there is something really difficult about kind of writing these very sort of, you know, procedural algorithms to police people into doing something that is obviously right in quite complex scenarios. And in, in the UK, you know, with with the problems that we've had with our libel laws, the, the most difficult question to answer is where people say, OK, write a new libel law, write a libel law that allows people to, um you know, make justified criticisms of people, but doesn't allow you to to unfairly. Uh, tear somebody's reputation apart without justification, but that also allows people to occasionally make honest mistakes and so on. You know, it's, it is actually quite difficult to frame these regulations, but I don't think it's so difficult that it can't be done. Like, and I think in a lot of cases there is, there's a strange situation that's arisen with the pharmaceutical industry where there is a huge volume of legislation and regulation. I mean, when I talk to people from the pharmaceutical industry, they kind of go, what do you mean we need more regulation? You know, I I, I had to submit 345,000 sheets of A4 to get that drug on the market. And you go, well, yeah, and you still hear like five trials. Um, right. So I don't, I don't know or care what was on those sheets of A4, but it obviously wasn't, uh, you know, the stuff that I wanted. I, I think the problem is regulation is a really tricky business and it can very rapidly turn into a bit of a game. And also what you tend to get is a kind of strange regulatory capture, you get this sort of strange situation that emerges where the only people who like have a lot in common with each other in their work life are the people who work in the regulator and the people who work for the regulatory affairs department of the companies. So inevitably, they spend quite a lot of time hanging out and they kind of identify with each other. And there's a lot of movement between posts in the two organizations. and, And that's all kind of really unhealthy as well.
1: Do you think that there's any plausible role for academia in in this problem to tr- to to take up some of the slack or uh, you know prevent some of the abuses that are going on?
4: Well, do you know, I I think academics and doctors are in a really interesting position here actually because firstly, like something to be really really clear on with all of this is I'm actually in favour of the work that the pharmaceutical industry do in general. Like, there is no medicine without medicines. They develop these really amazing, fantastic compounds which have extraordinary and often very clever and very nuanced effects on the human body. You know, there's no doubt that these companies produce absolutely fantastic science some of the time. And I think it's a real tragedy, firstly, that doctors and academics can't feel... Really positive and enthusiastic about collaborating with industry because when you think about it, that should be the most natural thing in the world, you know. And it's, it's strange how, like, any of us who work in, in academia or medicine, we all kind of know that when you, you know, you chat to a friend about a project they're working on with the, with a pharmaceutical company, and they always tell it to you with a kind of shit-eating smile, like they know it's a little bit dodgy. And, you know, people are a little bit embarrassed to be collaborating with this industry. And 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 it it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. You know, like, they could be really great, and it wouldn't take that much. Like, I'm not some kind of weird, kind of rabid anti-capitalist, you know. I mean, obviously, a lot of the work that gets done by the pharmaceutical industry is by academics or people who used to have academic posts and now go off to be industry scientists I, I don't think it's very realistic to say that academics can do trials instead of the pharmaceutical industry just because we don't have societies that are configured in that way you know um i always find it really weird when people say 90% of all clinical trials are paid for by the pharmaceutical industry as if that was the pharmaceutical industry's fault you know like you know we've we've all made collective voting decisions i suppose even if maybe we don't feel like we personally voted for the kinds of parties that would make these decisions but you know as a society we've collectively made these voting decisions that um we're not going to fund a lot of uh, state sponsored clinical trials research and so to an extent we have to accept that this stuff is going to be done by the pharmaceutical industry and we have to we have to try and get you know, find ways of making sure that it's regulated in such a way that um, that it's just done transparently. I mean, you know, the requirement that I would have in mind are pretty minimal. It's just, you know, it's just publish everything that you get from human trials, you know.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think just, uh, it's, a, it's an industry based upon science. The regulations largely revolve around science and science requires transparency. And I think that that's, you know, that's been identified now as a problem and that's absolutely fixable. So, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. It's always fascinating talking with you. It's been too long since we've been in the same room together. We have to find a way to be at the same skeptical conference at the same time.
4: (laughs) That would be awesome. Yeah, so, that,
0: Ben, that means go to do uh, TAM 9. <laughs> Let's get that yeah, on. Right.
4: Yeah, yeah. Well, where is, it, where is it? Is it in Vegas? I quite enjoyed Vegas. Yeah, go to Vegas. Uh,
1: Next TAM in Vegas. You've got to go there.
4: I've never felt more English in my life than when I was in <laughs> yeah. Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Vegas.
1: <laughs> you were definitely very, very English when you, you were last at TAM Las Vegas. I, I didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, everyone should look for your book, Bad Science, Quacks, Hacks, and Big Pharma Flax by Ben Goldacre.
4: Yeah, you should buy that because uh, they'll be rare one day, you know. (laughs) The American edition certainly will be. (laughs) All right, Ben, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks, boss. Cheers. Good night. Later.
0: It's time for
2: Science or Fiction.
1: Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, here we go. Item number one. Researchers find that feeling in love is as effective in pain relief as narcotic medications. Item number two, a new study finds that whale feces contributes more nitrogen to fish ecosystems than all rivers combined. And item number three, astronomers have discovered the largest galaxy supercluster ever with hundreds of galaxies and with a mass of around 800 trillion solar masses.
0: Wow. Jay, go first. So this first one where researchers find that feeling in love is is as effective in pain relief as narcotic medication... That's very gray, Steve. Because like, how much narcotic medication? You know, like, it's very unclear. I'm sure there's a level of narcotics that you could get that would completely blow away. I believe that that uh, the <laughs> statement is quite unambiguous. Yeah. So I, you know, it's it's an interesting idea. I mean, the chemicals that are released when you're in love. I mean, your your brain chemistry changes to a certain degree when when you're in love, and and it changes. Uh, your perception and it changes a lot of different things that go on in the brain, and I'm sure that there is a a feel good sensation that goes with it that could actually affect pain. So I, I I believe that I don't know to what degree, but I I think there is something very true about that. Item number two, uh, study finds that whale feces contribute more nitrogen to fish ecosystems than all rivers combined. That's really interesting. I mean I. I I know that, uh, of course, whales are gigantic mammals, like they're varying size mammals, but the, you know some of them are just incredibly huge, which means they have to eat a lot. And if they eat a lot, they poop a lot. So there's a lot of whale poop out there. But compared to the size of the oceans, could, th- could that possibly be true? That's really interesting. And the last one, uh, the astronomers that discovered the largest galaxy supercluster ever with hundreds of galaxies. Wow with a mass of around 800 trillion solar masses. My god. Wow. God, I hope that's true. I'm going to say that the whale poop is the fake to a degree. It's it's I'm sure that it contributes, but it's not it's not the the leading factor of nitrogen.
3: Okay, Rebecca? Oh man. Yeah, I okay, so love yeah, I can see love being as effective. Like 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 jay said um your whole brain chemistry changes and um love is awesome i mean yeah makes total sense (laughs) (laughs) it's true it is it's very powerful and um and you put up with a lot of you know stupid bullshit for it so it's got to be a good pain reliever um you don't even notice the bullshit you know for at least the first few months So, I think that's true. My theory is that the in love phase
1: lasts just long enough, you know, evolutionarily speaking, and within our evolutionary milieu, just long enough to get knocked up.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, Although, although, you know, I've heard some interesting theories about the various kinds of love that you go through and, um, you know, how the passion can kind of um, transition into the 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 staying power the the love of staying power you know that what's that about staying power long term that you know that long term not like that <laughs> I'm not even being perverted Jay sorry <laughs> uh, bonding bonding is the the word I was looking for anyway you know what anyway I think it's true <laughs> right um, that's the only one that I'm fairly certain about. As for whale poo, um, contributing more nitrogen to ecosystems than all rivers combined, I know one person in the audience who's gonna be very excited right now. Um, Izzy Lawrence, my my friend uh here in England. We were doing uh we were doing a, a skeptical talk thing together a month ago or so and during Q and A for some reason Izzy just blurted out that she she doesn't think whales poo um, because she's never seen it before. and There would have to be an enormous amount of poo but she's never seen whale poo before. So I know she's going to be listening quite intently to, to hear exactly what this is. I do, however, think that whales poo and I can believe that it contributes more nitrogen than the rivers because they've got to poo a lot. They are yeah. big animals. As for the largest galaxy supercluster, I'm i so bad with numbers, especially on this scale, that I... I mean, that's a big number, 800 trillion solar masses, but I don't know... Is that, is that big, astronomically speaking? I mean, I guess so, but I don't know what the previous largest galaxy supercluster was, so... It's between those two, and I'm just gonna have to i'm gonna I'm gonna go with Jay because i it's a wow. coin flip and Jay doesn't get a lot of love when it comes to science or fiction, but I think he's right in this case just because I think that um whales are big and they poop a lot, but you know there's so ma- so many um nutrients and things you know running off off soil and, and things like that into rivers that I think that it, they wouldn't they wouldn't poo that much that's what I'm gonna go with okay, Bob
2: isn't it Evan's turn <laughs> so uh yeah, the first one uh love being as effective as uh narcotic medications, yeah, that seems pretty obvious to me with so many hormones released when you're in love uh norepinephrine uh, endorphins oxytocin, there's so many things are released that I could see it at being as potent as um as narcotics definitely. Um, I'm gonna to jump to three, the uh, the supercluster, uh, 800 trillion solar masses. Wow, that's, that's a lot of solar masses. Uh, for some reason, hundreds of galaxies doesn't wow me that much. Uh, it's a lot of galaxies, but um, I would think that it would be in the thousands. But um, you know, part of me's thinking, well, why, why didn't they find this um, earlier? It must have been you know many billions of light years away, and and pretty dim. So yeah, that's not a huge surprise. God, I wonder how how big the thing is now. Uh, let's see, uh, the second one, yeah, I've got a problem with the second one. Yeah, I'm sure whales excrete a whole ton of stuff, but, uh, comparing it to all the rivers combined, I mean, no way. I mean, I mean, even the Amazon, I think alone would probably outproduce all of whale crap. So I'm going to say that that one, I think it seems pretty clear that that one is fiction.
1: All right, so you all agree on number two, so let's take this in order. Item number one, researchers find that feeling in love is as effective in pain relief as narcotic medications. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is the fiction. Wow. What? This one is the fiction.
3: What? Awesome. You
1: guys read it, and you didn't read deep enough. (laughs)
3: <laughs> All right. Let's read, let's read
1: deeper oh, now. Let's, no let's see bastard. where we –
0: was I on to something with me questioning the – Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. There really
1: isn't much of a ceiling effect with opioids. I mean, if you use high enough dose, you, you know, you can you know, pretty much make you numb to pain. What the study actually showed was that uh, being passionately in love is as effective in pain relief as being distracted. By other stimuli, which is to oh. say, not terribly effective. But what was interesting in this study? So they actually it was a, it was a small study in in a few people. S- they in, compared it to cocaine. What are you talking about? Only in yeah. only by mechanism, not by intensity. What? what the, but I'm getting there. It's actually a very interesting oh. study. What what they got? Got to be careful about press releases. You got to read the actual studies. I know. Um, I so do, what they I they it, like it was a they looked at. Uh, I think 15 total undergraduates, uh, they used, you know, some, um, I think, electrical stimulation to the palm as a as a, a way to induce pain. They asked the subjects to bring a picture of the person that they were passionately in love with at the moment. And they, they definitely were going for that early oogie in love phase, not a more mature, later sustained love phase. They wanted the biochemical dopamine in love did you phase. Did say oogie? I did. I said oogie. Yeah. Um Boy, you get real bonus points if you could tell me what obscure reference that is. But yes, I did say Oogie. And they they also had them bring a picture of an acquaintance of theirs that was as attractive as their significant other that they were in love with. And they had, uh, during the study, they had them look at either one picture or the other. And then they had a third group that did a, a task that was distracting. Uh, what they found was that the group that... Was doing the distracting activity had the same decrease in pain perception as the group that was con- contemplating the picture of their loved one, and both of them were greater than looking at the picture of an, an attractive acquaintance. But what was interesting was that the distraction. And they also did fMRI's at the same time, and the the people who were being distracted had different. Uh, activity in their brain than the people who were looking at the picture of their loved one. The people who were looking at pictures of their loved one uh, had changes in the uh, the nucleus accumbens, which is, a, which is a nucleus in the brain that is involved with reward and addiction. Uh, and it is part of um, the, the brain that responds to dopamine, which is sort of the major reward and addiction neurotransmitter. So they, they, the comparison to opioids and cocaine was because it works through the same part of the brain and the same neurotransmitter that it's somehow involved. You know, the same ba- brain structures are involved. When you feel in love, you're getting the same reward center activation as, you, as when you use these, these drugs. But this, the size of the effect was negligible compared to what you would get off of,
0: you know, co- off of uh, narcotics. So here's where I uh. made my fatal mistake. I failed to realize or sorry, failed to remember that pain is love. I mean (laughs) Love is pain. I failed failed (laughs) failed to remember that love is pain, of course. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: That means you're in a good place though, Jay. You're right. That's right. Oh boy. (laughs) What you forgot was that your brother is a sneaky bastard. That's true. That's what you should have remembered.
2: Good job, Steve. I mean but get let's get to the
0: whale crap because I find it hard to believe. Okay. Bob, you want to go from love to shit. (laughs)
1: Really? A new study finds that whale feces contributes more nitrogen to fish ecosystems than all rivers combined. And that one, of course, is science. Very interesting as well. Wow. There's a couple of things here. First of all, yes, whales produce a lot of poop. Whale poop is massive. However, the conventional wisdom was that whale poop would sink and actually would remove nutrients from the the, uh, upper parts of the water where most of the fish are because it would sink it down to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, however, what the scientists discovered, they just published a study in PLOS One, that whales also put out a type of poop that is very loose and floats on the, uh, near the surface of the water. And that the volume of this poop is actually sufficient that it would create what, what they call the significant whale pump. Whales actually feed lower down in the oceans, and then their feces is expelled higher up. So they are they are continuously pumping nitrogen from the lower parts of the ocean to the upper parts of the ocean, and the volume is so significant, even with reduced whale populations, that it's actually worldwide a more significant contributor to the nitrogen cycle in the ocean than all the rivers in the world, according to their study. This is not true of every place in the world, because, like, for example, there's the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Are you guys familiar with this phenomenon? Sure. All of the... The Bermuda Triangle? No, no. There's the... uh, it's, It's a process called coastal eutrophication. Because there's a lot of farmland surrounding the Mississippi... A lot of of the fertilizer, nitrogen runoff from this farmland finds its way into the Mississippi and gets dumped into the Gulf of Mexico. And the nitrogen concentration actually becomes so high that it kills off the fish. You get this this dead zone. And it gets worse, of course, during those times of years when there's going to be a lot of runoff from uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers in these areas. It's actually one of the... What apparently completely legitimate points about uh, industrial farming you know that we we have to figure out how to deal with this problem of uh, of runoff because it actually does create these dead zones, but there's other places in the ocean where there is too little nitrogen where nitrogen is a limiting factor on fish on the fish ecosystem on fish growth and and reproduction, and that Whales produce a significant you know, contribution to the nitrogen in these parts of the ocean and therefore significantly contribute to the fish ecosystem and uh, to fisheries. Uh, this becomes yet another reason why we need to protect whale populations
0: because their poop is an important part of the ecosystem. Wow. So it really that's, does boil, boil down to the, the chemicals that are used in the, pharmacy, the farming industry. Yeah, well, that's what causes the dead zone. That's unrelated to the whale poop issue. Uh, yeah. Still, though, Steve,
1: all the rivers in the world... That's what they said. There's a, I guess there's a lot of whales, and they're big, and they produce a lot of poop.
3: Uh, <laughs> Izzy will be very excited to hear that.
1: Let's go on. Number three, astronomers have discovered the largest galaxy supercluster ever with hundreds of galaxies and with a mass of around 800 trillion solar masses. That one, of course, is science, and pretty cool. You know, it's... A, not a big deal. They discovered the biggest one, and Bob, you're right. I don't know if you read the article, but it is seven no. billion light years away. So quite, yeah. quite a distance. This was found in the constellation Pictor, the painter. This is Pictor. This was discovered by the South Pole
0: Telescope, which, of course, so views the southern half of the sky. Yep. So how can Steve? How can they tell that that's what they found? You know.
1: Well, the gra- the gravitational effect would be one way. Yes, they can They can tell because it would be pulling everything around it, into it, so they can get an idea of how massive it is based upon the gravitational effect. They might also be, I don't know if they're also seeing a lensing effect, which is another way of estimating
2: uh, yeah, gra- gravity. A
1: and they, by the brightness, they could pr- tell how many stars are there, you know, or at least. Yeah, to uh, figure out how yeah, far you away it Figure is. out sort of the average brightness of stars and, you know, yeah, which yeah. now how far away it is.
2: Uh, yeah, they could find certain standard candles. I don't know if it's too far away to, to identify them, but uh, but wow, seven billion light years. How, well, I know, that's how it looks. Seven billion light years. I mean, seven billion years ago. Well, I wonder what's going on with it now. Ew.
1: Also, the, the article does say that in this they are um, this group is hunting for galaxy superclusters using the sunyev zeldovich effect. It's a small distortion of the cosmic background. Microwave radiation, cool. Yeah, very interesting. So yeah, these galaxy superclusters actually distort the background microwave radiation, so that's how they detected it.
2: Good job, Steve. I thought this this one was a no-brainer, but
1: uh,
0: (laughs) yeah. Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? Here's my quote: A naked American man stole my (laughs) balloon. (laughs) (laughs) This is a quote that was sent in by Christine Pulliam from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it's a quote by Anatole France. I hope I pronounced that name right. <laughs> Probably not. It's spelled France, yeah. but who knows? I challenge the rest of you to pronounce this man's name correctly. Uh, real quickly, he was a French poet, a journalist, and a novelist. He was born in Paris, and he died in Saint-Cyr-sur-Loire. <laughs> well, I at least guessed <laughs> that his last name is pronounced France.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Anatole France. Uh, 1844,
0: 1924, and the quote is, An education isn't how much you have committed to memory or even how much you know. It's being able to differentiate between what you do know and what you don't. Anatole France! (laughs) I I really
1: like that quote.
0: Yeah, that's good. It's very good. That's why I
1: picked it. It's sort of the meta-knowledge, knowledge about how we know what we know and differentiating things that are known from things that are not known. That's the most important thing. And I also think that's right in the sweet spot of skepticism intellectually, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it really is
0: admitting to yourself that uh, you you most likely do know a very narrow amount of information well, and the broad amount of information, you really don't have a clue on the specifics. Mm -hmm. This person was also a uh, Nobel laureate for literature. Oh, interesting. Yeah.
1: Mm. Uh, I have an announcement this week. Uh, so, of course, we've been talking about the fact that uh, the SGU is going to Sydney, Australia for a TAM Oz, or TAM Australia. And uh, we will, on November 20th, most of us, uh, everyone but uh, Rebecca, will be in uh, Vancouver for a special event there. Uh, but also, we are going to have an SGU dinner on the Thursday night prior to TAM Australia. And the uh, tickets for this event are finally available. They're going to be for sale through the uh, the online shop for the uh, Australia Skeptics. So you need to go to www.skeptics.com.au slash latest slash events. And there will be a link to the shop page where you can purchase tickets for the dinner. If you are in Australia and you're going to be in Sydney, and especially if you're one of the people who emailed us and said that they didn't get a ticket because the tickets for the TANM Australia were sold out, but you want to meet us while we're in Australia, this is your best chance. Get a ticket for the SGU dinner. These things do tend to sell out quickly, so if you if you want to make this event, I suggest you get tickets soon. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's
0: going to be such a cool event. I'm going. Yeah, I, I thought I would probably show up too
3: yeah yeah why not and while we're talking about (laughs) Australia um, I should mention I'm doing um, a show with Brian Dunning in Melbourne after TAM I think it's going to be December 1st and I don't know that all the details are out there yet but just wanted to let people in Melbourne know because you've been writing and saying that you can't make it to Sydney so uh, I'm going to come to you well thank you for joining me again this week guys
1: Thank you, Steve. welcome. I got all of you on science fiction. I just thought I'd point yeah, that out. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. It happens. It, it does. Happens. Yeah, occasionally. We've got to throw you bone every once in a while. That's true. Mm. Yeah.
1: And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, Please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission.